You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal under every condition and circumstance. And then we have looked at the mysterious nature of contentment and seen that there is a mystery to contentment in that it's not the same as happiness because I can be racked with grief and yet be content. It's not the same as laziness because contentment may be completely accepting of a condition or a situation and yet laboring hard to be out from underneath of that situation or condition, affliction or suffering, for instance. It's also mysterious in that in being content, I can be the most contented person in the world and yet be the most unsatisfied person in the world because I find that unless I have Christ, nothing else in the world would satisfy me. So as contented Christians, we can be both contented and totally insatiable, unsatisfied with everything and anything that is not Christ. And now we come to verse 12, and there is something in my flesh, something in my sinfulness, that having heard now everything that I've said for the last several weeks about contentment, there's something in me that says, yeah, Osmond, that sounds really good. See, that's how I talk to myself, always in the last name, with the last name. Osmond, that sounds really good. I understand all of that about contentment, and that sounds really great for when times are good, when I am lavished with blessings and I have all that my heart could desire and my income is great and my security is great and I'm not under affliction and I'm not under any sort of punishment or persecution. I'm not under any kind of want or hunger and I'm not going without anything. During the best of lifetimes, contentment sounds like it would be really great because then I wouldn't want more and I could just be happy with what I have. But isn't contentment just for the good times? Is it also for the bad times? What about when life is really lean? What about when you go without and you're hungry or you're thirsty? What about when provision is thinner than at other times? Can I still be content then? Now, there's something in me that says, no, that's when it's really difficult to be content. But that just would betray a lack of understanding about the real value of the virtue of contentment. You see, verse 12 shows us that it is when times are the leanest and times are the worst that the true value of contentment really shines through. That is when we understand the real value of having a contented heart and a contented being. Look at verse 12 with me. The Apostle says, after saying in verse 11, I don't speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along in humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and of suffering need. 
I want you to notice verse 12 really is an elaboration on verse 11. Verse 11, Paul says, I've learned in every circumstance, whatever circumstance I am in, I've learned to be content. Then in verse 12, he sort of lists the circumstances for us. He says, I have learned in this circumstance and in this circumstance, when this is true and when this is true, on this extreme and on that extreme, I have learned in whatever circumstance I am to be content. So verse 12 really is explaining the circumstances part of it. And it answers the question for us, is contentment something that is just valuable to me when things are going good? Or is contentment something that is valuable to me even when things are going poorly? Even when things are thin? Even when life is not at its best? And the answer is, Contentment is valuable in both situations of life. You'll also notice, and I want you to keep this in mind, that in verse 12, the Apostle Paul is not describing spiritual wants or spiritual lacks. Some people have, L-A-C-K-S, lacks or lacks thereof. Some people have looked at verse 12 and said there he's describing being humbled or be abased. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I know how to be humble, spiritually speaking. He's not describing anything spiritual in verse 12. He's talking strictly in fiscal terms, strictly in monetary terms. Strictly in terms of physical assets, physical wants, physical needs, physical provision, physical possessions. Nothing spiritual is in view. He's not talking about going or lacking anything spiritually. He's talking strictly in terms of being filled. And you see the, you see the financial or the physical language that he uses. I know what it means to live with humble means, and I know what it is to get along in prosperity. I know what it is to be filled and to go hungry, both to have abundance and to suffer need. He's not describing anything spiritual. Describing physical realities. He's describing a life that he had lived on both extremes. Do you notice that? Two extremes. He uses actually three sets of words, both of them, uh, three sets of words, and in those three sets of words, he describes something on one extreme and something on the other extreme. And listen, by implication, he's including everything in between. The Apostle Paul, for instance, says, I know what it means to live with humble means, that is, to have nothing. And I also know what it means to live in abundance and prosperity. That is to have all that my heart desires or could want or that I could need. And by implication, he is including all of the circumstances and situations that fall into life and fall into his life that were between those two extremes. Have you ever noticed that life has a way of throwing you on a roller coaster or a pendulum? You notice that? There are times in life when things are going just swimmingly. Everything is great. You have no wants, no desires, nothing that you want that your heart desires. Do you withhold from yourself? You have plenty of provision. Business is good. The job is good. Just got a promotion. You're at the top of your pay scale. Things are going great. Everything is lively. All of your possessions are in order. Nothing is broken. Everything is great. Marriage is great. Your kids are doing great. School's going great. Your recreation is great. There's just not a complaint in the world. And then all of a sudden, you're on the other extreme. And what happens? There's a downturn in the economy, and you lose X amount out of your investments. Now, listen, I don't have a whole lot of investments. I've got a little bit that I get put away every month. But for the last five, probably six months, I have not looked at that little bottom line. I haven't. And I've been, it comes in the mail. I say, oh, that's it. That's the statement. And through the grinder it goes, or in the tax file it goes, depending on which one it's supposed to be in. I haven't looked at it at all. I finally looked at it because i got to do my taxes. I finally looked at it here a few weeks ago. Oh, man. I'll tell you what. I just put off retirement for a couple more years because it's going to take four or five years to make up for what I lost during the downturn. And how fast does it switch from good to bad? What does it take? One major event. It's overnight. It's gone. That's why the Bible, in a very realistic way, says don't put your hope in uncertain riches. Why? 
Because they make themselves wings and there they go. Just as fast as they land on your doorstep, you open up the door and there they are. They're gone again. And that's how fast it can happen. You can go from living like a prince to not that I've ever lived like a prince on my retirement, but you can go from living like a prince or having all that a prince could want all the way to living like a pauper and having absolutely nothing. It can happen overnight. It can happen in a moment's time. And the same can be true in all of the emotional things that happen in our lives. You can go from everything going well and swimmingly and then you're like Job overnight or in the turn of the blink of an eye or the turn of a clock. All of a sudden, it seems like all of the world and all of hell literally has broken loose against you and everything is attacking you. It attacks you emotionally, it attacks you spiritually, it's attacking you mentally, it attacks you in, with guilt and everything in the world is aligned against you. Horrible stuff. Roller coaster, isn't it? From one pendulum swing to the other pendulum swing. And through all of that, if we learn anything, we should learn this. We can't control our circumstances. Can you? You cannot control your circumstances. I cannot control what the world does to me. I cannot control what other people do to me. I cannot control what happens to me outside of my own little kingdom that I rule over. And most of the time, I don't even rule over that. I can't control what happens even inside my own little kingdom that I think I rule sometimes. It doesn't, I just can't control my circumstances. That's why Solomon in Ecclesiastes when he's describing life from the human perspective without God in the picture, just from under the sun, looking at, observing life and living, he says, it happens to the wise man just like it happens to the fool, to the rich man just like it happens to the poor man. Time and chance overtake them all. Is that true? It is true from the human perspective. You look at it and you say, what is it that causes a man to go from riches to rags and die in insanity? Or what is it that causes a man to go from rags to riches and suddenly become wealthy. They both die. They both go to the same place. And from the human perspective, it's all chance. It's just a roll of the dice. You can either look at it from that perspective or you can look at it from God's perspective and realize that there, even though you can't control your circumstances, you can control how you respond to your circumstances. And there is a way of living in whatever circumstance comes your way. And that's verse 12. The secret is contentment. So let's dive into the passage and let's look at what the Apostle Paul says. He says in verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means and I also know how to live in prosperity. Now, the Apostle Paul is not there just confessing that he has experienced both prosperity and poverty, but he is saying, and here's the emphasis, I know how to live with prosperity and I know how to live in poverty. There is a difference. Do you not understand this? There is a difference between experiencing the extremes and knowing how to live at both extremes. It's one thing to experience or live through both poverty and prosperity, but it's another thing to be able to say, I know how to live well and how to handle life when I'm in prosperity, and I know how to live well and I know how to handle life when I am in poverty. Those are two different, two different things. Some people know how to handle abundance, but they cannot handle poverty. And you probably know such people. While life is good and they are enjoying all of the blessings and attractions that come with life, and they have all of that life has to offer, and they live in abundance, and they do so well. They're not greedy. They're not covetousness. They don't cling to their things. They're good stewards of their resources. They give much away when God blesses them with things. They don't, they're not always trying to think of how to increase their wealth. It just sort of seems to fall into their lap. And while they're living with it, they live by faith in the Son of God, just like the poor person does. And everything goes swimmingly. And they, they can handle abundance. They can handle all of these life's things. They're not always vexed and worried about how do I get more? How do I keep what I got? 
They know how to live with abundance, and they do so well. But then what happens when that individual who knows how to live in abundance, when poverty strikes, what goes on? They may know how to live with abundance, but they may not necessarily know how to live in poverty. And then something happens and the extreme of life comes and they lose everything. And what happens? They go. Some of them have gone nuts. And you've read the story of rich people who've lost everything and they go crazy. During the Depression, we know of the stories of men that dove out of high-rise buildings and killed themselves. Why? Because they lost everything. They know how to live with abundance, but they can't live in poverty. They don't know how to live in poverty. It's one thing to know how to live in abundance. It's something else to know how to live in poverty. And somebody who can live in abundance, but can't live in lack or in poverty... When poverty does strike, they start to worry and they fret. And then they begin to doubt the providence of God and the faithfulness of God. And they can't trust God to provide for them in the small things. So they've never learned to be thankful for small things. They've always been thankful for big things. And so then when want comes or poverty strikes, then all of a sudden they're undone. Completely undone. And in the midst of their poverty, they begin to make rash decisions. And then in their lack and in their want, they are tempted to cheat or to steal or to be dishonest or to compromise their principles or integrity in order to get back what they once had. They can handle abundance, but they can't handle poverty. Now, there are people on the other side of the spectrum. They can live just fine in poverty. They can live just fine without anything. Day after day, they walk by faith and God provides hand to mouth the things that they need each and every day. They're thankful for the little things. No covetous, no, no greed, no uh, discontentment. They're absolutely content with all that they have and all that they've received and they're thankful for it. And they live just fine on meager means with hardly anything day after day after day. And everything is great. And they walk with God in that and they serve God in that. And then all of a sudden, it's rags to riches. Overnight, it goes from what? Having nothing to all of a sudden having everything. And listen, riches have ruined more men than poverty ever did. And I'm not talking about these riches. Riches have ruined, yeah, I needed to clarify that because I knew you, I see you sweating. Riches have ruined more men than poverty ever did. And they go from having nothing to having everything and they don't know how to handle it. To borrow an illustration from this year's Super Bowl, one day you're bagging groceries and five months later you're the Super Bowl MVP. Now Kurt Warner, that's his story several years ago when he first got into the NFL. Kurt Warner has handled it just fine. From hourly, it hasn't ruined him that I've seen. Some of you might argue, and I don't mean here to sort of, you know, betray who it is that I'm cheering for this afternoon. Go Cardinals! I would never do that. <laughs> Nor would I ever use the sermon as an opportunity to promote any one particular team. You know me better than that. But that was the story of Kurt Warner several years ago. He he went from rags to riches overnight. That can ruin a lot of guys, and they go from having nothing all of a sudden they've got everything. And there are temptations and trials and tribulations and thorns that come with riches that most of us who don't have those riches never think of. Jeremiah Burroughs, he says, A man may have a very fine new shoe, but nobody knows where it pinches him except the one who has it on. Isn't that the truth? We always think that other men are happier than ourselves. We think, oh, if I only had what they had, then I would be happy. And we never understand the misery that they're really in. And if we only had what they had, we would be just as miserable as they are. And we would hide it just as well as they do. And we always think that the other guy is happier than we are. And we look at their new shoe and we have no idea that it's pinching their foot. And that's what riches do. They pinch and they choke. And so there are temptations and there are trials that come with riches that do not come with poverty. Temptations to get more and distractions and have all the worldly goods and you begin to forget God. That's why in Proverbs chapter 30, Agur prays, Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither riches nor poverty. Feed me with the food that is my portion. That I be not full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? That's the temptation that comes with riches. To all of a sudden begin to think, my hand has acquired me all of this. And so my hand will keep me all of this. 
And then you begin to say, who is the Lord? I have no recollection of Him or what has brought me this. But then Agur goes on to say, or that I be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. And that's the temptation that goes with poverty. That you might be in such poverty that you would compromise or blaspheme God's name by doing something to get yourself out of it. You know what the secret to handling both of those extremes is? Contentment. Contentment. That's why Paul was able to say, I know how to live with abundance and I know how to live in poverty. And you're tempted to say, but if I had more, I would be content. No, you wouldn't. Oh, yes, I would, Jim. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't be content. Do you remember King Ahab? Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 21. What did he do? little tiny vineyard right next to his palace. He wanted that vineyard. And listen, Ahab had the kingdom. He was king. He had all the land. He had other vineyards. And he knew he had other vineyards. And he confessed that he had other vineyards. And he offered to trade any one of his vineyards for this little tiny vineyard that was next to his house that belonged to Naboth. And Naboth wouldn't do it. He said, I can't sin against God by selling my family's inheritance. And what did Ahab do? He said, okay, I can be content with that and go back to his palace room. No, he went and lied down in his bed, didn't eat, didn't drink, and turned against the wall and pouted. And then Jezebel had to kill Naboth to give Ahab the vineyard so that Ahab would be content. Couldn't the king be content with all of the vineyards that he had? No, because he who loves money will never be satisfied with money. And he who has vineyards will never be satisfied with all his vineyards. Ahab couldn't be satisfied with his vineyards because he didn't have Naboth's vineyard. And he thought to himself, if I could only have Naboth's vineyard, then I would be content. And would he have been content? How about Haman? Book of Esther, was Haman content with all of the honor and all of the glory that the king gave him? He wasn't content until he had what? The honor that came from Mordecai. There was this one lowly Jew that would not bow before Haman. Mordecai. And Haman would not be content with all of the honor that the king had given to him because he didn't have all of the honor. He didn't have honor from Mordecai. And he couldn't be content with everything he'd been given. He had to have Mordecai's honor. Why? Because he who loves honor will never be satisfied with honor. He who loves reputation will never be satisfied with reputation. He who loves pleasure will never be satisfied with pleasure. He who loves money will never be satisfied with money. He who loves ease will never be satisfied with ease. doesn't matter what it is. You can fill in the blank. If that is what you love, if that is your idol, you'll never be satisfied with it. So how is it that I'm able to live, or you are able to live, with both abundance and need? Both prosperity and poverty. It's one thing to be able to live in abundance. It's another thing to be able to live in poverty. But listen, there are very few people who are able to live in both. And they know how to live in both. And what is the key? It is contentment. And here's why. Because contentment isolates you or insulates you from the temptations and the trials that come with poverty. If you're poor, if you have nothing, if you're in need, and you're content then try what he may. The devil cannot lure you into doing anything to change your situation or to compromise any of your principles because you're content in your situation. And so contentment insulates the person who's going without from all of the trials and difficulties and the temptations that come with poverty. And contentment insulates the person who has abundance from ever thinking to themselves that they have what they have by their own hand, ever becoming proud of what they have, or ever becoming dissatisfied with what they have and wanting more. It is only the contented individual, the person who is content in a biblical way, it is only a contented individual who knows how to live in abundance and he knows how to live in poverty and come what may, he can handle any situation and any circumstance. Only a truly biblically contented individual can do that. 
That's why Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means and I know how to live in abundance. Let me make one other observation here real quick before we leave the beginning of verse 12, and it's this. There is nothing wrong with either of those two extremes, abundance or poverty, prosperity or poverty. We tend to make one of two mistakes in our minds. Both of them really are the same mistake, but we apply it in two different ways. We look at somebody who has had something bad happen to them and they're going without or they're poor or they're lacking basic supply, and we assume or think to ourselves, well, that must be because of sin in their lives, because of a lack of faith, or because of the chastening hand of God. I had a pastor friend tell to me one time, and I re- tell me this one time, and I reproved him for it. He said, so and so lost their job, their business is shutting down. That's the chastening hand of God upon them because of their sin. It's because they're in sin that that's happening to them, and that's why all of those things are ha- coming upon them. You know what I told him? There's no way that you can tell me that you know that. Maybe God is taking away all of those things to draw that individual closer to them. Maybe God is taking all of those things away from that person to provide an even bigger blessing on the other side of that adversity. Perhaps the Lord is taking those things away from that person to protect that person from something that would happen to them if they had all of those things. Or from some sin or some stumbling or some, some, uh, something that they might do as a result of having all of those blessings. You can't tell me that because something bad happens to somebody and they're in poverty that's a result of their sin. This is particularly a prominent idea in some, not all, but some charismatic circles, but all word faith teachers, all word faith circles. The idea that that they talk to us a gospel of greed and gullible people buy it up and say, oh yeah, if if you don't have all the world's possessions, it must be because you have lack of faith or because God is punishing you or you just haven't asked for some sin in your life. It's not sinful to be poor. It's not sinful to be poor. The other extreme, the other error that we make sometimes is to look at somebody's possessions and judge the, the condition of their heart. We say they've got a nice vehicle. They've got a nice house. They seem to be living in luxury. They have a well-paying job. They must be covetous. They must be greedy. Really, how do you know that? It could just be the blessing of God upon them for that season, right? could be that. You have no way of knowing the condition of their heart. Somebody's condition or the abundance of their possession. Listen, no indicator whatsoever of the condition of their heart. None whatsoever. You cannot tell a thing about an individual's spiritual walk from their possessions. Nothing. You can tell something about them from their giving habits, but nothing from what they possess. Nothing from what they possess. It is either one, to judge an individual because of the outward possessions that they have or the condition of their flock, so to speak, and to make a judgment that they're either in sin because they have nothing or they're in sin because they have everything. And you know what the mindset behind that is? When are they not in sin? Well, when they have exactly what I have and they're doing with it exactly what I'm doing. That's when they're not in sin. Right? But if they have more than me, they're sinning. Or if they have less than me, they're sinning. Really? How arrogant is that? Would you suggest that the Apostle Paul at times of abundance was in sin? How about times of want? Was it because of sin? I would never say that. He doesn't say there's anything wrong with either one of those extremes. He simply says... I have learned how to live with both abundance and with need in those two extremes. Then look what he says. Not only has he learned to get along with humble means and with abundance, but he says, in every or in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being content. In any and every circumstance. It's emphatic in the Greek because of the way it is phrased. In all circumstances, he's wanting us to know. In any and every circumstance, I have learned. 
Let me ask you this. Is it possible for you to be content in any circumstance? It's possible, isn't it? Now, whether I have learned to be content in every circumstance, that's a different question. But I know that it is possible for me to be content in any circumstance. See, I have never for one day in my life experienced any of the hostility or opposition that the Apostle Paul would have experienced in his Christian walk. The Apostle Paul, in one week of his life, has experienced more opposition to the Gospel, more hatred from friends, former friends, from family members, from people who oppose the Gospel, more attacks from Satan than I have experienced in my entire life. Am I happy and quick to confess that to you? I've never suffered like him. So listen, if Paul can be content, then I know that I can be content as well. In any circumstance and in every situation. But here's the problem. You and I need to learn contentment. I know that it's possible, but have I learned to do it? That's something only you can answer. That's something only I can answer for myself if I can honestly be content. But the only way that I'm not going to be battered by every circumstance that comes my way is if I know how to live with abundance and with need. And it may be that many of us have to, are going to have to learn how to live with need sooner than we want. It's possible. There are people here who are going to be dirt poor before you die. And right now you have everything that you want, probably everything that you need. But that might not always be the case. So how do you keep from being buffeted by every circumstance and every situation? Contentment. Contentment is the only way you can do that. Even though I know how, uh, sorry, even though I know it's possible, I may not know, I may not have learned that and developed that virtue. But here's what I do know. God is honing that in me. He is forging, and I love this word, He is forging that virtue inside of me. Forging it. When we all went on vacation last fall as a family, we spent two weeks over in Nova Scotia. And one of the things that we did more often than anything else was to go to these different places where they, it was like stepping back in time. You've been there where everybody's in the, the era dress and every era tools and all of that era's food and all of that. And we went into this one blacksmith shop where this guy was uh, forging implements on an anvil with a hammer and he had the coals there and he had the little thing that he would crank like that and you stick the poker into the fire and crank that up and heat it and then you pull that out and begin to beat on that piece of metal. And we stood there and watched him for probably about 15 minutes as he forged this thing. And I think it was a a coat hook or something that he was making out of this piece of metal. He forged this thing from a square piece of iron into this curved, very thin, very finely crafted uh, coat hook that he was making. Friends, that's exactly how God teaches us contentment. There are times when you have to go through the fire. And there are times when you have to be cooled down. And there are times when you have to be put on the anvil and you have to be beaten on. That's how God teaches us contentment. But in all of it, God has designed all of the situations of my life To forge in me contentment. He wants me to be content. So you notice there that the Apostle Paul, in the last part of verse 12, he says, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. You notice those two extremes? He says, I have learned the secret. The secret. Interesting word. Only used there in the New Testament. By the way, there was a book published by that title a few years back, wasn't there? It appeared on Oprah. There's a little little clue for you. If it appears on Oprah, don't walk, but run to the nearest exit away from that. It cannot be good if it was on Oprah. It was on Oprah. And the book, the book, The Secret, had nothing whatsoever to do with contentment. So as Paul describes contentment, he's talking about the secret. He said, I've learned the secret. And he uses a word that was used in Paul's day of mystery religions, these cultic groups where they had a certain few in that group who had gone through an initiation process and had been brought up, so to speak, to the next level. 
and had learned all of the secrets and privileges, like becoming a 33rd degree Mason or something. You know, all of the secrets and the privileges of being among the elite. And that's the word that the Apostle uses. Not in order to describe Christianity as a cult, or to describe Christianity as some Gnostic sect where you have to learn the secrets of being initiated, but to describe instead this process of learning contentment. I have learned, that is, in all of my learning, I have been through the initiation process, and now I have discovered what true contentment is. It took him his whole life to do this. From the Damascus Road all the way until he pens the book of Philippians. He looks back over his whole life and he says, the sum and substance of all of it, the lesson is this, I can be content in whatever circumstance I find myself. That was his secret. He learned the secret of being hungry and of being filled of having abundance and of suffering need. Does God really let His children sometimes go without and be hungry? Does God ever do that? Some of you are non-committal, totally non-committal. I don't know how to answer that. Does God ever let His children go without and be hungry? He does. He does. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle says to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty We are poorly clothed, we are roughly treated, and are homeless. We toil, working with our own hands. When we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. To this very hour, he says, I am hungry, and I'm thirsty, and I'm poorly clothed. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, as he's describing all of the labors and hardships of being an apostle, he says, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Does God let His children sometimes go without and be hungry? God does do that. He does do that. Paul's describing hunger not like you and I are hungry. You're hungry right now because it's been a while since you ate. You're thinking of the Super Bowl this afternoon. You're saying to yourself, I'm going to have chips and dips and little weenies uh, wrapped in uh, bread and all of that good stuff, and or you're thinking about the lunch that you have packed away in the oven or going out for lunch right after service, and the more I talk about it, the hungrier you get, the more restless you get. Some of you are starting to drool. Not talking about hunger like that. The Apostle Paul is talking about hunger that comes as a result of having no food and having no means to buy food and having no means to acquire any food. And he says, I've gone without. I've known what it means to be hungry. I have known what it means to go day after day after day without any meal and without any ability to get a meal. Now, if the Apostle Paul... If the Lord would allow the Apostle Paul to go without and to experience hunger, what makes you think you have an inalienable right to food every meal? You don't. I certainly don't. Does the Lord ever allow His children to suffer hunger? Yeah, and sometimes the Lord takes them home through starvation. You mean God would starve some of His children to death? Yeah, just like He would let them bleed to death or die to death in a car accident or any other tragedy. Those things come. Those things happen. The Lord does allow those things to happen. But what about the promise that He will provide for all of my food and all of my clothing and all of my water that I need and my thirst and my eating? He knows my needs. What about that promise? Is that promise no longer valid? It certainly is valid. And here's the promise. Until the Lord wants to take you home, He will provide for you all of the food that He wants you to be sustained with and all of the water that He wants you to be sustained with until it's your time to go. And then guess what? You're not going to eat anymore. Your food supply is going to run out the moment you die. So does that mean that God is not loving and He's not kind and He doesn't provide for us? He certainly does provide for us and His provision is always good. And, but in His kindness, sometimes He says, look, I want you to learn to be content. And you can go without. Not this afternoon because it's Super Bowl Sunday. I don't want anybody to go without this afternoon. But sometimes in the providence of God, 
He may determine to make you suffer terrible, terrible need and want and deprivation. Is that because God has our worst in view and He wants to kill all of our joy and destroy us and torture us and punish us? Is that what He's after? It's not what He's after. You know what He's after? He wants us to find Christ's sufficiency and to be content, to learn to be content in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. So some of you here have a lot of this world's needs or uh, goods, just like I do. I, I'm, I confess to you I am rich beyond probably two-thirds of the world's population. I'm not as rich as some people here. I'm not as rich as most people in our area. But compared to the entire world, I'm rich beyond most people's imagination. Absolutely rich. Even growing up in a poor family as a poor kid and having literally next to nothing in all of that poverty, I, was, I still had a TV that I watched. I was still rich compared to most of the world's population. I have never known true poverty in the sense that the people in this world experience poverty. So whatever, here's my question to you. In whatever circumstance you find yourself, whether it is loaded with blessings and abundance and prosperity, or whether it is at this moment suffering deprivation and need and tight times and financial hardship, here's my question. If your fortunes, and I use that term loosely, if your fortunes were reversed, how would you be able to live? Some of you can live well with prosperity, but then when that's gone, your life falls apart. You know what your problem is? You have not learned contentment. If you knew contentment, the circumstances wouldn't affect you one bit. Some of you know how to get along with little means, poor means. And then when prosperity comes, you fall apart. You know why that is? Because you haven't learned contentment. If you had learned contentment, then the circumstances don't matter. Sometimes we cry for things, riches, pleasures, worldly things. We cry for those things to God. God, give me this. Give me such and such. And the reason the Lord does not always answer those prayers and does not give us those things is because He knows those things are not best for us. It's like a toddler who's just learning to walk, and they see their mom slicing vegetables on the counter, and they see that shiny butcher knife, and they see it glimmering in the sun, and they want that. They want to grab a hold of that. But they have no idea of the danger that's posed by that item. And they cry for it, and they whine for it, and they want it, but a loving and good parent will not give a two-year-old a butcher knife. Why? Because he knows that the two-year-old is not ready to handle the danger that comes with that possession. Most of us would stop our whining and our crying for more things if we only knew what more things would do to us. It's to my detriment. You know why I don't have a million dollars? I'll tell you why I don't have a million dollars. Because I would probably ruin myself, my family, and a lot of other people if I had a million dollars. If a million dollars in my bank account was the best thing for me, I would have that right now. If it were the best thing. It's not the best thing for me. So I don't have it. You know what the best thing for me in my situation is? My situation. That is the best for me right now. That is contentment. A quiet, gracious frame of spirit that freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal of myself in every condition. And contentment knows wherever I'm at, whatever is happening, that is the best thing for me right now. If it weren't best for me, it would change. Because God's glory is tied to what is best for me. And He is most glorified when that which is best happens to me and I respond rightly to it. I've saved verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me for next week. Because it's such an abused verse, I wanted to give it a whole week all to itself 
so that I could defend it. I started to go through that, and I thought, this just takes, it's going to take more time than we have for this morning. So let's bow in prayer, and we will look at verse 13 next week. Father, we thank you that you are committed to teaching us contentment. We have become convinced of its necessity and its value. We thank you, Father, that that virtue is possible for us who are in Christ, and we pray that you would continue to forge it in us. Teach us that contentment in all of life's circumstances and situations, and give us grace and your perspective to evaluate our own hearts, to analyze ourselves, and to see what it is in us that keeps that from being forged and learnt in a proper way. We ask, O oh God, that you would do this for your glory, that you would teach us this, that we might honor and glorify you in every circumstance and situation that you bring to us, that we might reflect the character of Jesus Christ our Lord. It is in his name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.